0: Hey, guys, I've got some Jumanji-themed riddles for you guys to guess what the threat is. That sounds interesting. All right, here we go. Here's the first one. They're in your ear most every day. You'll laugh at all the things they say.
1: Oh, I know. Comedians.
2: Well, I mean, no, not really. Uh, Is it like the mad voices in my head? Oh, uh, well, uh, maybe,
0: but not what I was going for. Here, let me try another one. Maybe this will help. Okay, okay. Mm, Yeah, yeah. In every single film they pick, they always find the class conflict.
2: Maybe some sort of very, very sad documentary crew. No, that's not it.
1: Film editors. The editing team.
2: No, that wasn't what I was going
0: for, either.
1: Huh. Well, you, oh. you stumped me.
0: Okay, I have one more. I was hoping I wouldn't have to use this one, but I, I guess I'll go for it. No matter what they say or do, they somehow always mention poo. Oh, it's us!
1: Oh, yeah, Swords and Satire!
0: Ah, <sighs> Fuck. <laughs> Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords & Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Malkul, here with my wild co-hosts.
1: I'm stumped. No. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a monkey, no, a swarm of monkeys that wants to wreak havoc in your house.
0: So you, Chelsea, are a swarm of monkeys.
1: Yes, hidden look. under all these clothes.
0: Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a good look for you. That's good.
1: Thanks. It's
0: like three kobolds in a trench coat.
2: <laughs> I'm stumped because I was also going to do a monkey. <laughs> yeah. You should. It's Just a monkey it. movie. Well. Yeah. It turns out I'm also a monkey. <laughs> my name is Jack Olander, and I'm a monkey that was just going about its business before being given evil intelligence. Oh, God. Specifically evil trickster intelligence. You learn how to operate a vehicle and fire a shotgun. Yeah, not going to lie. Being around you is sort of messing with me. You've got a sort of hive mind thing going on. It's sort of poking into my brain. I'm yeah, not sure.
1: You might get roped in eventually.
2: Yeah. 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 Oh boy,
0: well, obviously I am in a dangerous position here, but anyways, this week, if you haven't figured it out by now, we're going to be talking about Jumanji, the 1995 classic, I would say, right? It's the classic. Yeah, Di- yeah. Direct- classic to me. There you go, <laughs> that's all that matters. Directed by Joe Johnson and starring Robin Williams, Kirsten Dunst. Bradley Pierce, uh, Baby Newworth. Be- <laughs> baby, baby? Baby Newworth? <laughs> baby Newworth. It was a really uh, talented baby. <laughs> very talented baby. A very mature baby since she played the aunt of the children. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, Bonnie Hunt and Jonathan Hyde. Great cast. And David Allen Greer, who I grew up watching the comedic stylings of. So.
1: Oh, he's so great. I love him. I remember him from In Living Color. He was always so funny. I love his facial expressions. He's so expressive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, really pays off in this movie a lot. Yeah. But, hey, enough gushing over some of our favorite comedic actors. I think Chelsea has a summary ready to go.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, this movie takes place in a few different timelines, but all centered around... This one quaint American town that was colonized back in the 1800s.
0: We've got the class struggle just right out of the gates. But first, could you tell me what the different timelines, like what they are, what the different years are?
1: Yeah, we've got 1869. Nice. Nice. There are two colonist boys who are burying the game. And it's protesting by drumming a lot.
0: Mm-hmm, that's right.
1: And they look freaked out. They are trying to get away from it. They're trying to escape it. Then we go to 1969. Nice. Double nice. nice.
0: <laughs> Twice nice. Yeah. Twice as nice.
1: And this is in Brantford, New Hampshire, by the way. All of these uh, timelines are in the same place. This is where we get to Alan and Sarah... They live in this town. Alan is the son of Sam Parrish, the local shoe production magnate. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm, that's right. The uh, the capitalist of the town.
1: He basically employs most of the people in the town with the, in his shoe factories. Alan is his son. They're like one of the wealthy people, uh, families in town. Um, and his friend Sarah is also a in the wealthier class. They live nearby each other and Alan finds the game at a construction site near his father's factory and brings it home to play. Sarah comes over because she's returning his bike to him after it was stolen by bullies. And so she comes in, They she kind of accidentally starts playing the game by just dropping the dice the game's tricksy.
0: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. The game always tricks you into playing it.
1: Oh, partly though, it uh Alan found it because it was calling to him. It and it called to Sarah too. She heard the drumming.
0: Yeah, it seems to call to to children. Like right. young teenagers, tweens, people who are not yet in adulthood. Yeah. Because whenever we hear the drumming, adults are just like, I don't hear anything. What are you talking
1: about? Alan lands on a bad square. <laughs> are there are there good
0: squares? I have Not actually seen any confirmation that there is a good outcome in Jumanji. They're all bad squares. Yeah.
1: And he gets trapped in the game world.
0: They're all the go-to-jail space from Monopoly.
1: And they didn't read the um, clause that's written on the game that you have to play until you finish. Or you'll be stuck in the game forever, basically. That's right. And as Alan is getting sucked into the game, jewel that's at the center... He's calling out to Sarah to keep playing until she rolls the right number so doubles, that she can. I think. It was yep. a five or an eight.
0: Oh, five or an eight. Sorry. Yep.
1: And um, that way she can free him.
0: Of course, doubles gives you another roll. Duh. But yep. uh,
1: bats come out of the house from an earlier roll and scare her away. And so she never finishes it, and he's stuck in the game world for 26 years.
0: You know what? This movie offended me just on the basis of they started a game and didn't finish it. Ugh.
1: And by the way, Carl, I forgot to mention, played by David Allen Greer, is um, a shoemaker in Sam's factory, and he's also an inventor.
0: He basically invents Air Jordans. Yeah. In 1969.
1: Yeah. Nice. Nice. Then we jump to 1995, 26 years later. Wait, what? (laughs) Not
0: 2069?
1: You would think so.
0: Maybe it actually does take place in 2069, but just like, you know, technology hasn't changed that much. It's not a movie about like futurism or anything. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes the most sense to me. I
1: think you're thinking of Zethura.
0: Oh, that's possible. Yeah. But we haven't covered that one yet.
1: No. So, a new family moves in. It's... A woman named Nora and her niece and nephew, Judy and Peter. And Judy and Peter's parents died in a car crash in Canada, but Judy lies about how they died all the time. And she lies a lot. It's a form of uh, self-defense mechanism.
0: Mm -hmm, A little bit of coping. Meanwhile, Peter doesn't speak to adults, it seems like, for the
1: most part. Because he doesn't feel like he can trust them.
0: Yeah, (laughs) gonna go off and fucking die like a bunch of losers. Classic adult things. Yeah, I know. Adults always dying.
1: So Sarah and Peter start to hear the drumming. The game starts calling to them, which is pretty creepy. And they find it in the attic, and they start playing
0: like you do. And
1: one of them rolls either Nader if I ever forget.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think it's a. It calls in a lion. Sure. And it also frees Robin Williams or Alan.
0: I, I think it just frees Robin Williams,
1: yeah. honestly. <laughs> he didn't know he was in a movie. Um.
0: <laughs> I don't know if he ever knew he was in a movie. <laughs> Genie? Nope. That was just him just
2: being himself. He's he, just popping off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: He actually survived all those years in the jungle of the game. It's a very harsh place. And um, he comes out in clothing that he made there out of plants. Pretty
0: impressive tailoring, actually.
1: He traps the lion for them in the bedroom. Let's kind of gloss over this so that we can get to the delve. So yeah. all kinds of hijinks ensue from the game. They get Sarah back into the team because they realize they can't finish the game without her. The town is getting wrecked by all these things that are coming out of the game, like like stampedes and, and mosquitoes, and it's wrecking their town, which is in economic distress because the parish... A shoe factory. Shoe factory shut down.
0: That's right. A little bit of class conflict going on. Yep. A destitute town unable to pay the bills after the eccentric millionaire shut
2: down the factory because his son disappeared. It's true. They're financially stagnating and now there are a lot of natural disasters. Yeah. yeah. I think we can pretty
0: much sum up the like second and third acts as... Jungle-themed drinks ensues.
1: Yeah, except just to mention that Van Pelt is called through the game by one of their roles. Who's He's a hunter, and he's <laughs> called by one of Alan's roles, so he comes out trying to hunt Alan.
0: And he really just wants to murder this former, like, orphaned child.
1: And this character is played by the same actor who plays his father, Sam. More on that soon. Exactly. So that's why I wanted to mention that. Uh, but then in the end, one of them finally gets to the center jewel. Oh, that was Alan. And he calls out Jumanji. And that ends the game. And everything goes back to the way it was before they started the game. True. So they all go back to their their original timeline before they even started the game. So they get to kind of redo their... Alan and Sarah get to redo their lives.
0: Yeah, that's right. They uh, choose to become... Uh capitalist swine, (laughs) and lord their wealth over everyone at elaborate parties. But I guess they do save Peter and Judy's parents from the car accident, and we'll see in the sequel if this creates a final destination like Karma system, right? Yeah. Okay, great.
2: Yeah, I'm just surprised that Jumanji had a lot of events, a lot of interesting events as a game, and they probably didn't see all of them. And they only played it once. They didn't even try another playthrough. I know. Yeah. Cowards. <laughs> yeah.
1: They, in fact, Alan and Sarah bury the game, or they sink it to the bottom of their like local lake, but then there's a final scene where it shows up- um, In France. On a beach in France, and two girls can hear the drumming, and they're walking closer to the game before it fades to black.
2: Jumanji refuses to be silenced. Yes. Jumanji returns to a formerly colonizing civilization.
1: Yes. Where it's it true.
2: belongs.
0: <laughs> That's. I mean, I believe that the game exists to punish the colonizers. But on that note, why don't we head into the delve? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So let's just pull the Band-Aid off. Right at the beginning here. We have got a game. I'm sorry. We have got a movie here that appropriates <laughs> native styles and uh, like imagery and kind of jungle. Yeah,
1: it's a jungle themed game. Jungle
0: themes, but in a completely colonized American environment. Yeah,
1: it's clearly meant to represent Africa because of all the animals that come out of there are the types that would be living in Africa.
0: Yes. So I mean a lot of imagery from, you know, like African style art. I just I think broadly mm-hmm. on like the game box, yeah. it's this yeah. elaborate carved box and everything. There's like ivory elephant game yeah. pieces and monkeys and stuff. Yeah. Let's talk about it. I mean, is this game a punishment, a curse on colon- uh, colonial societies that punishes them for coming in and devastating the African landscape.
1: I mean, I like that interpretation because not everyone that plays the game finishes it. The two boys in the original timeline, 1896, they never finished the game. Do we what know One of the boys said, I, shouldn't we finish the game? And oh. the other one said, we just need to get it out of our lives.
0: So, I mean, so there was a
1: major
0: influx of non-native animals in that town somewhere before the 1990s timeline that we see
1: and they're not they're not actually real world animals they have some kind of otherworldly intelligence to them they right. are
0: they are animals that we find in our world but yes they they seem to have a greater intelligence than just animal intelligence
1: and it's also kind of sinister. In a way. So you you could be right. It could be a punishment on the colonizers because it's usually colonizer people from colonizer cultures that tend to find this game.
0: Yeah. I mean, everybody else, I guess, knows better than to play Jumanji.
1: Now, there's the differences between the movie and the book that are interesting. I did a little research on that. Let's hear it. So the author... the
0: First off, the book is a written document, not a live film. Right. That's probably the biggest change. On
1: paper. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, often on paper or digitally these days.
1: It is a picture book for children, though.
0: Oh, interesting. So
1: it was published in (laughs) 1981, and it was written by Chris Van Allsburg, who also wrote Zathura.
0: Sequel to this movie and part of the franchise. Yeah.
1: And you guys...
0: (laughs) Oh, I can't wait.
1: He also wrote... The Polar Express.
0: Oh. No. Yes. No. No, you're kidding.
1: <laughs> no. this
0: is, You're pranking me right now.
1: No, it's true.
0: <laughs> the most haunting film we've ever covered on Swords and Satire yes. was also written by the author of Jumanji.
1: I was freaking out when I found out about it.
2: I can't believe you've hidden this from me. <laughs> This makes me wonder what other dark secrets you're (laughs) obscuring. I would rather be sucked into the Jumanji jungle for 26 years than ride on the Polar Express for one night. Agreed. Agreed. I don't care how much, quote, hot chocolate there is on the Polar Express. No way. Fuck out of here with that.
1: So in the book, Jumanji, Judy and Peter find the game... On their own in a local park near their home. Their okay. parents are alive. They're just out at work and Judy. A movies
0: and gotta be killing them parents. That's just movie law.
1: Yeah, I guess so. And then Judy and Peter are just like home by themselves and bored. And they play the game and it wrecks their house and it, it devastates their town.
0: No, I swear, Mom and Dad, it was just a game.
1: They finish the game. There's never any Alan or Sarah or other timelines, and Judy and Peter do it all themselves.
0: (laughs) So you're saying the book is just two children playing a game
1: and dealing with all the repercussions of it. Okay. Mm. And then when they finish the game, everything reverts back. But then they leave the they abandon the game back in the local park. And go back home like nothing ever happened.
0: So they, <laughs> Why is there all this monkey shit all over the place? Uh, I don't know, mom and dad.
1: But there's an, a really important point I'm building up to, which is they see two boys that are brothers and their neighbors walking as they're looking out the window. They're walking back from the park with the game excitedly talking about it with the full knowledge that they learned from those boys' mother that they never finish any Games or books that they read or play.
2: Whoa. And they
1: don't do anything to stop them.
0: I think Judy and Peter are probably like, they could be tried in The Hague.
1: <laughs> it's fucking wild. And, um.
0: Hi, Jinx, everybody.
1: That made me think like the lesson in the book is like.
0: Finish your game.
1: Right. Like, <laughs> the author must just be really mad at people that don't finish the games they play or something. I don't know. Hey,
0: honestly, same.
1: (laughs) It's like- Four games are
0: supposed to be finished, man.
1: Because this is a children's book. They usually include some lessons. And so I was like, what is he trying to teach kids? Like, to finish what you started.
0: (laughs) The greatest lie that's ever been told is, oh, we'll finish Monopoly when we get back from dinner. (laughs) There is no back from dinner. There is no finishing Monopoly.
1: And I thought another lesson he was probably trying to impart is to take responsibility for your actions.
0: Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, I mean, that's good. That's a good, uh, you know, probably some decent lessons that he's trying to instill. But then again, he wrote the Polar Express, which means that the author could also probably be tried in the
2: Hague.
1: So... Yeah, yeah. Yep, like, yeah. on its own, I don't think the book had this colonialist subtext like the movie does.
0: Okay, so there's no, like, and Van it, Pelt, there's no uh, there safari is a, hunter. There's an
1: explorer,
0: oh, not that's a pretty hunter. Different. That's very different. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, has colonialist and imperialist connotations.
1: Yes, but. and the whole idea that it's a jungle-themed game is still the same. So there are those threads, and they blew that up for the movie and made it more of an obvious theme.
0: Yeah. Also, they got Robin Williams in there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so that made it. But um, yeah, I mean, the idea of colonialism is also seen in the thread of ancestry. Yes, that absolutely. That runs throughout the film mm-hmm. because the parrish family, who are this wealthy part of this wealthy class in the town. They had ancestors that were part of the founding members of the town. Yeah,
0: there's yeah. a statue of the great-great-whatever grandfather in the middle of town. And the boys who are bullying Alan in the beginning basically say, like, we don't give a shit if your ancestors founded this town. You're a dead man to us, basically. Yeah. So... You know, I mean, that is just worker rebellion and probably the, the – I mean, I, I'm not justifying the boy's actions. He shouldn't be shitty to another kid because the kids have no bearing on what the parents do. Right. But, you know, people often misappropriate their anger at, like, the family of people. Say their parents work for Sam Parrish's shoe company. Right. Probably mistreated line employees. They hear these things from their parents about how bad the parishes are. They live in this giant opulent manner while the people of town are, you know, clearly, you know, working hard and probably not treated super well. As we can see how like Mr. Parish fires Sam, um, sorry, not Sam, uh, Carl for accidentally messing up a machine. like Which, which Alan, happens. Which Alan
1: actually did. Right, exactly. And in the first timeline did not take responsibility for. So they did maintain that lesson, take responsibility for your actions because when they get to go back in time after they finish the game, Alan takes responsibility for it, tells his father it was his fault and not to fire Carl. So he tries to right that wrong. Yes. But that was after like half of a lifetime or and it doesn't After cha- almost 30 years of living and understanding like what was really important, yeah. you know. Yeah.
0: I mean, that was that's kind of like the movie magic do-over that right. happens in movies like this with this time travel element, but it doesn't change the fact that Sam fired Carl for even if it was whoever's mistake it was, it's not really to me to be a fireable offense. Jeez. Like okay, so production got hampered for a few hours. Like it's not that big of a deal. Yeah,
1: I mean, the machine could be repaired. It just had to have a replacement part or something. Yeah. And Carl knew that he didn't put it on there and it, that it was probably Alan, but he took responsibility for it. And I think that's part of the lineage of colonialism with w- white privilege.
0: That's fair. That's yeah. a fair point.
1: Because the white kid didn't have to t- like see any repercussions for his actions and... The African-American worker had to take the fall. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: it's, you know, fucked up because Alan thinks of Carl as his friend, too. And yeah. he just fucking... Oh.
1: And vice versa.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, they have a but, rapport, but, you know, when it comes down to still it... He
1: fucked him over. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he ruined that sweet shoe.
1: I know. Well, he's precocious and...
0: He was getting entitled. bullied. Entitled. He was getting bullied, so I want to give him, like, a little bit of a break. Like, unfairly bullied by the kids in town. We'll see. I mean, bullied by somebody who might be a incredibly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So, let me take a step back. The head bully is basically saying to Alan, like, oh, you're talking to my girlfriend. Years later, Sarah's like, I don't even know who you're talking about. So, they weren't that close. So I think that the bully who was bullying Alan is probably some also super entitled, shitty, like toxic dude who's like, oh, you can't talk to this girl who's my girlfriend, even though she didn't even know my name. Right. That's fucking creepy.
1: That's true. And, you know, all of this was inserted in the movie. Yeah. These elements of class struggle were not in the book.
0: Well, I mean, this is a fantasy movie. There has to be class struggle. That's according to the code.
1: Yeah. It gives you the chance to include things that can speak to our social problems and class conflict.
0: I'm going to anticipate your next comment and agree. Yes, children's books do need to be filled with socialist messages to
1: reinforce.
2: (laughs) I mean, the younger you teach it, the better. It's true. And there's one scene in the movie I think was really important when it comes to class struggle. It was when Alan is freshly out of the game. Yes. He's still dressed up in his leaf clothing. Mm -hmm. And they go back to the parish shoe factory. Oh, yeah. Back up to his father's office. Where there's a homeless squatter living in there with his dog. Yeah. Oh,
0: but probably the best character in the movie who's not
2: Robin Williams. Yeah. And
1: he's got this sweet fireplace. It's awesome. Dude,
0: he's living it up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: who's the real fool? The, the person who's, like, squatting in the old factory? Or the person who's paying for, like, a small
2: townhouse in the suburbs? Yeah. It's true. Makes you think. They both probably have dogs, though. Well, it was just that the homeless man sees... Alan, in his sort of like discombobulated state, as he's in the new time and he doesn't know what's going on, and he gives him is it a blanket or his own coat? I think it's his coat coat off and gives it to Alan. He's like, Here, buddy, I know it can get cold out there at night. Yeah.
1: He also gives him, like, a set of clothes.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're saying that the person with the most compassion for their fellow human is somebody who's living in some amount of squalor. Well,
1: also generosity, with more generosity. Yeah. People exactly. who are struggling, lower socioeconomic status, usually are more generous with their fellow humans.
0: Greater solidarity. hmm But great points, Jack, about yeah. the, the squatter having, like, you know... Like the, Some of the, the most generous acts, like giving Alan the coat and everything. Yeah. I think that's a really important part of the message about how the, quote, lower classes are actually some of the people who are the most united and, and thoughtful. Yeah.
1: And instead of passing the factory on to another person, they just let it close when they die, his parents.
0: Yeah. So we've got this big... Town here that relies on this factory, and we see that in a system where one person controls the means of production, yep. that person's whims can completely dismantle the entire town's livelihood. Scott decides, oh, I'm gonna like close this factory, I'm gonna stop working. Sam? Sorry, Sam decides I'm gonna stop working and close up the factory. The whole town is fucked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, if the workers owned the means of production. (laughs) Yes. That wouldn't happen. One person couldn't just put everything at a standstill. Right. It wouldn't devastate the town. But this is mirroring Detroit, you know, when the auto industry closed down, multiple towns across America that have become destitute because a handful of the powerful, quote, elite decide to relocate outsource, etc., etc.
1: Yeah. Or just try to shut it down. Yeah. You know, too bad they didn't take an uh, example from the workers of Mondragon uh, in Spain.
0: Yeah, maybe let the listeners know about that.
1: So I don't remember the timeline, but it was a similar timeline in the 1980s, I believe, when um, this factory town... A lot of the factories were getting closed. People were losing their jobs. And uh, when some of the last factories were closing, the workers there realized, you know, just because the owner shut it down doesn't mean we can't keep making it. We're the ones that know how to make all this stuff and to use the equipment. Nice. So they just kept the factories going yeah. and, and figured out how to distribute it and then shared the profit amongst themselves and, and got it going. So at first it probably would have been, had some growing pains of working of for free, but then eventually they turned a profit and they were able to make it profitable. When the owner came back to try to basically take it back from them, they basically fought him in, le- or them probably a guy um, in <laughs> <laughs> in legal battles and they won.
0: Yeah. So Mondragon has kind of become the model for the worker-owned cooperative since
2: this time.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: In legal battles, when you lose, you get to keep your life, but you are declared legally dead. (laughs) I I didn't know that. That's an
0: interesting... Yes. uh, I I didn't study in law school, unfortunately. Legal
2: battle to the technical death.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd rather be legally dead than actually dead, so I could live with that, I
2: guess. Yeah.
1: So, our discussion, I have a couple other, like, major themes I would like us to cover. But our discussion, I feel like, is kind of naturally moving into one of the major themes of this, which is grief and trauma.
0: Let's talk about it. That's always fun.
2: I was traumatized.
1: (laughs) I
0: was traumatized when I found out that this guy wrote The Polar Express. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I know. I'm still Um,
0: processing that grief.
1: And this does not exist in the book. This is purely in the movie, which is interesting. So almost all the characters are touched by this, which kind of seems to say that everybody throughout their lives will be touched by grief or trauma of some type, and it's kind of a nod to that, acknowledging that.
0: And unfortunate, you know, or I don't know, unfortunately or fortunately, some people face it at younger ages. And-
1: yeah. So that would be Judy and Peter in the movie. Their parents die, and so they are grieving, and they're dealing with it in their own ways.
0: And similarly, Alan is literally pulled away from his family and forced to live in a hellscape jungle as a young boy and then grow into adulthood and become, like, a great hunter
1: yeah, like Very D&D the,
0: backstory, by the way.
1: Yeah, the jungles of Jumanji aren't, like, real-world places. They are supernaturally dangerous. Yes.
0: <laughs> and, like, jungles, if you're not accustomed to, like, how to survive in a jungle with wild animals, even a not-evil jungle that's trying to kill you, it's dangerous enough. Yeah. So, I mean, let's give Alan some props He must be a complete badass.
1: I mean, he went through when he was, like, somewhere between 10 and 12. Probably 12.
0: And And he survived.
1: I know. I have a theory about that. But, um, yeah, so he's traumatized through all those years. He has not been properly socialized as an adult. So when he comes back, he's kind of quirky and has a hard time relating to people and connecting with people.
0: I'd say he's, uh, yeah, that's true. But he's also got a particular sense of humor that I'd say labels him a Robin Williams type.
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, mm-hmm. There's good reason for that. Um, but all of the characters in the movie have experienced loss or trauma of some type. But the ones playing the game are all similar In ways that they have, they're dealing with their trauma and they have trouble connecting to others.
0: Yeah, and I wanna definitely take a chance here to uh, reiterate uh, Sarah's backstory. She was the one who was playing Jumanji unwittingly with Alan in the beginning and didn't finish the game. And basically, we find out that. Because of her experiences of watching Alan be pulled into a game.
1: And then being chased down the street by African bats that people told her couldn't have been there. Yeah, she
0: (laughs) says she's been through 2,000 hours of counseling and therapy. Yeah. I just want to reiterate, 2,000 hours to deal with this trauma. Yeah. That is... A lot of hours.
1: And by that, I mean intense. In the movie, she says to Alan, yes. don't call me crazy. I've and spent 2,000 hours in therapy to deal with this, and it, it was traumatizing. Don't belittle it. And yeah.
0: justifiably so. She, yeah. She's absolutely experienced horrendous trauma, being gaslit into trying to have people force her to believe that this didn't happen.
1: Right. Well, it's supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, other people don't believe her, as is the classic trope.
0: (laughs) But, you know, as the viewers, we are set up to be sympathetic because we know, for example, that only kids can hear the
2: drumming. Yes. I'm just trying to ponder... Why it is that the game that punishes the colonizers punishes children? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they're the most vulnerable, right?
1: And that can be a common curse, old timey curse. <laughs> yeah, actually, and and
0: yeah, it's I true. It bloodline curse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes back to the Bible, right? The firstborn son.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Sins of the father, bloodline curse is yeah. uh, Castlevania, the yeah, Belmonts yeah. curse. Uh. You know, possession of children also, like de- demons. That's yep. a common theme.
1: And so it fits within our curse theory that we have going <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yes. The swords
2: and satire curse theory.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One That's day the point. swords
2: and satire board game will curse you, too. Oh, oh I hope so. Yes, we Cursed with to- fun.
0: Yay! We- but I digress. I love that idea. And then it can suck them into the fantasy movies <laughs> yeah. when they're playing the game. It's awesome. Like, you're just, like, asking answering a question about Conan pushing mills, and then suddenly you are also chained to the mill, pushing it with Conan.
1: Then what an honor.
0: Incredible.
1: <laughs> then everybody's going to want to know how we made an inanimate object come to life.
0: And we'll never tell. <laughs> hmm. We hand carved every single copy of the game from a cursed tree. <laughs> we forged them all on the blackest night of the full moon, which doesn't even make sense. <laughs> oh,
2: Made from the wood of the tree that Hexus was trapped inside of from Fern Gully. <laughs> nice.
1: Nice. Yeah, that works. So getting back to our discussion about grief and trauma, so all of the characters segue. go through this adventure and kind of have a shared trauma through playing the game and dealing with the repercussions. And in that way, they kind of have, it's like group therapy for them.
0: Oh, it really is. Great call. It really is. And
1: they start to- Immersion
0: therapy. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. They connect with one another. They form bonds again with other people. And they experience healing as part of that process. And they all grow closer to each other. And
0: Yeah, I mean, it gives Alan and Sarah a chance to kind of like rekindle a relationship that was taken from them when he got pulled into the game. It seemed like they had like a bit of a connection. Yeah. And, you know, obviously they were friends at least. And this bully who was picking on Alan thought that Sarah was his girlfriend. Clearly, she did not feel the same way. As as an adult, we find out that she doesn't remember this kid's name.
1: Yeah, it's problematic because he's just claiming it without without her consent or knowledge. Which (laughs) is,
0: I mean, problematic, but also very believable. Oh, yeah. yeah. Problematic behavior represented accurately in the film. Yes. Um, And then also, Sarah and Alan have this bond with Judy and Peter, And, you know, in the future timeline when they have come out the other end of the game and, like, forgotten but not forgotten what happened, they try to save their parents, and it seems like they do. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guys, I've got so much more I want to talk about for this movie, but I think it's time to head to the bounty
1: board. If you insist.
0: I do. I actually do insist. You've rolled the dice and been sucked into a horrifying nightmare world. All around you, you can hear the pounding of hooves, the cawing of birds, and the chittering of horrifying creatures all around you that want nothing but your blood. You look around for something to help you, anything, and suddenly words begin to form in front of your face. They say... If you want to leave here, then these bounties you must hear. Hey, you there. That's right, I'm talking to you. You look like someone who loves stories. Now, don't be so surprised. It's my business to know things. And that's why I know you'll love Audible. Because they've got all the stories. So many stories you could live your whole life exploring new worlds inside your imagination. They've got audiobooks, podcasts, comedy, and all the spoken word content you could ever want, all in one convenient place. And there's this rumor going around that if you head to audibletrial.com slash swords right now, you can get a free 30-day trial of Audible, including a credit for a free audiobook of your choice. Think of all the great stories you could be listening to. What's that? Do I use Audible? Oh, friend, you know I do. In fact, I've got a finely curated collection of content that I've put together with some of the best works in fantasy, film, and cultural studies. If you're looking for a good lead on your first podcast, you could try His Majesty's Dragon by Naomi Novak. Ever wonder what the Napoleonic Wars would have been like if they were fought with dragons? Of course you have! So clearly, that's the book for you to try. Plus, Audible has all your favorite podcasts, like Swords and Satire. So head over to audibletrial.com slash swords and sign up for your free 30-day trial. You'll be giving yourself a little treat and helping out your favorite satirists. After that, it's just $14.95 a month. What a bargain, right? As a member, you'll get a credit every month for an audiobook and access to loads of audio content. And even if you cancel, not that you're going to want to, of course, you still get to keep all of your audiobooks. Now that's what I call a good deal. And now, back to the show.
1: Now I'm starting to think about another theme. It has to do with the unresolved parental issues. Oh,
0: nice. That yes, the characters
1: experience. Oh,
0: yes, perfect. This is great. I wanted to talk about this too, so.
1: Yeah. And it it kind of is a part of their shared trauma as well. So it, it feeds nicely together. This has to do with estrangement and punishment and loss. And
0: great topics. I love it. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: yes. Such so fun.
1: Sam. The Sam Parish, Alan's father. Uh, the big
0: P, as we call him.
1: Yeah, he's really big on um, <laughs> legacy and tradition. Alan wants to be his own person and make his own mark in the world, and kind of be able, have the freedom to create his own identity. And his father Sam wants him to carry on the family legacy.
0: Be a man, or some other broad patriarchal toxic bullshit. bullshit. Yeah, yeah, it's a real Luke and (laughs) Vader, huh? Yeah, I can see that. Join me, (laughs) and together we will rule the galaxy.
1: It's kind of like nobody (laughs) listens to each other. It's like between Sam and Alan. Sam doesn't listen to Alan. He just thinks that he's being belligerent by trying to stress his own wants and desires and just wants to punish him for speaking out of turn.
0: Yeah. And he just him to a blowout with his son over his son not wanting to go to a fucking shitty boarding school.
1: I know. And when um, later in the later timeline, when Judy and Peter come back from their first day of school, having moved into this new town, their aunt Nora has to get mad at them because she learned they had gone to the principal's office. And, uh, or Judy had for lying. And, um, she doesn't, like, ask Judy what's going on. She just gets mad and punishes her, tells her she's grounded. Because she thinks Judy keeps lying, but...
0: And Judy's she, like, I would not been lying this time! I
1: know, she was telling the truth about something, but Nora wouldn't believe her. And, um... Instead of, like, trying to relate to her and understand what's going on, try to like, talk to her, she just punishes her and sends her away. So nobody's listening to anybody.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine that Nora is also experiencing her own trauma. Yeah. She's lost a sibling. Yeah. I, we don't know which of the their brother. parents. Oh, was it the brother? Yeah. Okay, so, so she's lost brother. her brother. Yeah. She's taking in these kids she's clearly working some insane job to able to afford this gigantic mansion
1: well also she says she got it for a steal because there's all this like bad publicity about the property
0: sure but the heating and electricity alone is gonna be through the mm-hmm. roof on the uh, place true
2: but there is also potentially a child chopped up and hid in the walls of the house
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. fair that's fair
2: a uh, trigger warning by the way <laughs> 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 that's one of those monkey business moments we mentioned earlier yeah exactly um yeah i mean she's a single aunt taking in
0: her niece and nephew you know taking responsibility for them it's a big ask though like she probably had it seemed like she had maybe a good relationship with them before but it's nothing like raising the kids on her own so she's going through a lot of stuff too So it's understandable that she's also having a hard time transitioning into this new town and and this new environment.
1: Yeah. And, you know, by playing the game, all of the main characters who are the players end up being able to work through all these resolved issues together and uh, in different ways. Like Alan, this is like one of the big points I've been wanting to get up to and it involves a theory I have. So, he worked through his uh, parental issues when he was away in Jumanji. And yes. my theory is that he worked them out with Van Pelt. hmm Because Van Pelt looks exactly like his father. Played
0: right. by the same actor, Jonathan Hyde.
1: And he was a child when he went in. He has to have had something else helping him and protecting him. I think that Van Pelt took him under his wing because... <sighs> Later, when he's hunting him, he says something to Alan that implies that he is familiar with him. He says, uh, when Alan finally stops running away from Van Pelt and faces him, he says, good lad, you're finally acting like a man.
0: Which is the exact same thing that Alan's father was also basically saying to him. So again, some bullshit about you'll have to be a man someday.
1: Yes, but he calls him a lad, which is some an endearment for a child, so it means that he probably knew him as a child, and you're finally acting like a man. It's problematic to- it's a toxic masculinity thing, but the finally part is what clues you in that they've known each other for some time. He ha- he's familiar with Alan. They they know each other. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, Alan says that Van Pelt has been hunting him, but we don't know the whole backstory. That's a good point. We've almost got a version of the Yondu and Star-Lord story, yeah. but where Yondu actually did want to eat Star-Lord. <laughs> yeah. Except in this case, it would be mounting his head as a trophy on his, I guess, hunting lodge's wall.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this does go back for Alan to taking ownership for your actions. And actually, that's kind of partly what Jumanji means. I was looking into the name, and it's somewhat unverified, but I was looking it up, and it possibly is a Zulu word, which means many effects. Hmm. And it specifically refers to the many changes that can result from one's actions. Well, that's fitting. it's kind of like... Facing the consequences of your actions, Jumanji. And that's the whole whole game.
0: (laughs) Yeah, adult responsibilities, Jumanji.
1: I know. And so he faces his fear, which is standing up to his old man in the form of Van Pelt. So he kind of gets closure in that way at the end. Judy and Peter kind of get closure by befriending these adults that they're playing with who are kind of like guardian figures for them. And unlike their Aunt Nora, who they don't seem to have made a strong connection with.
0: Or if they have, it's it's tenuous because of the trauma that they've experienced. Yes. Or, you know, obviously not a strong connection. But, I mean, I think they do seem to want to not disappoint her, at least.
1: There seems to be some kind of a rapport there, for sure. But... They don't open up to her.
0: Right, of course. Yeah, they're, they're having a hard time, understandably.
1: But they do open up to Alan and Sarah. They Peter talks to them, mm-hmm. and Judy stops lying around them.
0: Yeah, and I think that that has exactly to do with the shared trauma that you mentioned earlier, Chelsea.
1: But it also kind of gives them closure. They're kind of like surrogate parents for them. Yeah. While they're going through this traumatic adventure. And so they're able to kind of, like, have one more adventure with their parents, basically.
0: Oh, that's kind of sweet.
1: Yeah. And it, that gives them closure. I mean, it's all undone in the end, but, uh, <laughs> you know.
0: Well, but it's corrected, right? In the mythology of the film, Alan and Sarah give Peter and Judy back their
2: parents. Yeah. And still get to start a relationship with all four of them. Yeah. Six of them now, cause the parents. Yeah. What's wrong, honey? Oh, I just feel like I'm supposed to be dead. Yes, <laughs> yes strange.
0: So do I. Hmm. Hmm. Odd to that. So I just wanted to. I mean, this kind of wraps it all up uh, together, like with the theme of the movie. On the rule board for Jumanji, yeah. where it lists the rules, it says, in its classic Jumanji rhyming fashion that Jumanji is a game for those who seek to find a way to leave their world behind. Which oh. is leaving behind responsibility. But we learned through the movie that you actually can't do that. That leaving behind responsibility just accentuates your problem, or just you know it either accentuates your problems later or it makes them worse. Yeah. Avoidance there's so many coping mechanisms and avoidance is like Peter and Judy's approach. Right. They're trying to avoid dealing with the loss of their parents.
1: So is Sarah.
0: And so and Sarah's trying to avoid the horrifying memory of losing Alan. Alan is literally in a nightmare realm. So, and you know, and Alan, I'm sorry, Alan also was trying to get away from his father and his, his you know, I think somewhat justifiably saw it as an abusive relationship. But it's, it's an escape mechanism, but we see that it's not a good one. Yeah. That it's more harmful in the end, because when you try to escape from your problems, bats and rhinoceros and elephants come out and try to murder you. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's that's true. the way of it.
2: And that sort of leads up to one of the takeaways from the film. Stay away from the unknown. Stick to the mundane. And don't ask questions.
1: Oh, God.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it does kind of seem about right, doesn't it?
1: It's also <laughs> about finding closure by connecting to others and facing your fears, though. So it's kind of oh. conflicting message, mm-hmm. yeah, right?
0: That, <laughs> I, like, I like that one more. Let's stick with that one. Yeah, <laughs> too, As our capstone. But
1: you're right. That message is in there.
0: Yeah, yeah. don't rock the boat. <laughs> Maintain the status quo. Yeah. Eat at Joe's.
2: Mm-hmm. It, it sort of reminds me, of Boy, that was
0: though, a dated a- dumb
2: joke I just made. Shh. <laughs> It sort of reminds me of one of the themes from Disney's Onward actually. Oh, the yeah? quote from the the Manticore's Tavern that was like adventure requires leaving your comfort zone or yes. something like that.
0: Right. And another movie that deals with the traumatic loss of a parent. Yeah. Yeah. My god, is Onward based on Jumanji? No, no, that's
2: crazy talk. No, no, <laughs> that's crazy. However, that's not the only film that had a lot of similarities to Jumanji. Chelsea was the first one to notice that this film was very similar to The NeverEnding Story.
1: Uh, I think you should go over it, though. Ah, go ahead.
2: As our NeverEnding Story expert, Jack, I think, yeah. yeah, I agree. So, the similarities between this and The NeverEnding Story, I suppose the beginning is very similar, where it starts out with the main character being bullied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First right. of all. Chased by bullies.
1: Yeah. The Chased
2: classic movie bullying. For their more, I'd say, expressive side. Or more sensitive side. Right. Rather, both characters who are going through loss. Sebastian in the never ending story is dealing with the death of his mother. Whereas, Alan is not dealing with loss immediately.
1: (laughs) But
0: he's anticipating the loss of his parents through being pulled into a game.
1: Maybe. (laughs) He doesn't really have too many friends, so maybe that's a loss he's feeling.
0: Yeah. I think, you (laughs) know, there is a loss because he and Sarah are developing a relationship and he's being told by this bully kid and his gang of thugs that he
2: can't have that relationship anymore. Right. Well, both movies deal with the loss of parents, even though to Alan, it doesn't happen when he's a kid. It happens when he's an adult. Yeah. And a, an adult child. <laughs> yeah. And then to the two kids. Not a man man-child, also, that's something different. This no, isn't no. the
1: movie Jack, by the way, where Robin Williams was also a child in a man's body. This is a different movie. No, no, Ooh, no. Oh,
0: those, those, <laughs> uh, those stories were always troubling.
2: Yeah. And, uh, oh gosh. Anyway, uh, there's also... <laughs> we call it the big effect. Oh, God. <laughs> the idea of non-safe ways to have fun. Right? Yeah.
0: Oh,
1: good
2: old dangerous fun. Yeah. Like reading. Yeah, and Chelsea, dangerous you that out. dangerous stories are
1: dangerous games. I like that idea. It's like making the mundane like horrifying by taking something that's a part of most of our childhood's stories and games and making it unsafe.
0: I thought you meant the mundane, like, having wild animals trying to kill you everywhere you go.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I do like how you described it as the most dangerous game. It's like, we're going to be hunting the most dangerous game. You mean man? No, no, Jumanji. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I
1: think it's a really interesting way to do horror.
0: This is a horror movie, right? It's pretty horrifying in some parts.
1: It is, kind of. I mean, it's classified as an adventure fantasy movie, but I think it's a Uh horror movie. (laughs)
2: It's true. I think it's just zany enough to make you not <laughs> be terrified. Yeah, maybe okay, but think of it this way: reimagine all the scenes,
0: but sinister music instead of like the jaunty adventure music.
1: And yes. if you're a child watching it,
0: yes, yeah. So somebody out there, please recut this movie with the soundtrack from, let's say, Saw. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are lots of parallels there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah toys. <laughs> G- toys and games. Would you like to play a game?
0: Yeah. Just Jumanji on the table? Oh,
1: fuck. No, Just I'd l- rather have my arm sawed off. <laughs> of <them>. <laughs> <laughs> At
0: Wait,
1: least that's I predictable. I don't literally have a saw. You misinterpreted.
0: Mm. No, in the first movie, they literally had a saw, though. Oh, uh, okay. Remember, uh... uh uh, Wesley had to
2: cut his own foot off.
1: <laughs> Carrie Ewells. Wesley? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't think I saw it, so.
1: Oh. However, uh,
2: going back to the comparison real quick. He <laughs> Jamie a minute. <laughs> he
0: sat here thinking Jackson, about it. said he didn't think he saw it. And he was talking about the movie Saw. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. <laughs> do you have a name for that
2: (laughs) yeah it's trauma we
0: talked about it as one of the
1: themes
0: (laughs) i do feel like i just took some psychic damage
1: as do most people that hear puns
0: yes
2: i like puns
1: i do too but most people act like they take psychic damage when they hear it (laughs)
2: yeah it's true yeah Anyway, a few of the last other comparisons between the films. The uh, the father pushing conformity. Sebastian's yeah. father is like, stop drawing all those dang horses in your notebook and pay attention to class. Right. Sebastian's like, dad, you ignorant fuck. <laughs> yeah, what is it about
0: old white man that loves a status quo? Oh, right.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. wait a minute. But it makes sense that Sebastian is drawing unicorns. Because even though one would not think they could contain such power, (laughs) one could rule the universe with it. That is accurate. Yes.
0: Sebastian in Neverending Story, just a big fan of legend. And who isn't? I mean, Tim
2: Curry. It's true.
1: He's the legend.
2: Exactly. (laughs) It's true. You see how this movie tied back to Tim Curry? (laughs) just like every film. Yeah, what's your favorite part of Jumanji? Oh, the Tim Curry Association.
1: This movie is kind of wild because it's helping us draw comparisons to so many movies.
0: I mean, I'm pretty sure that Jumanji kind of acts like the Dark Tower and it connects all worlds. That is
1: a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've we're finding that out.
2: Yeah. Speaking of connecting worlds, in both films, Neverending Story and Jumanji, there are characters who address the audience. Right. Who is hopefully not part of their world.
1: They break the fourth wall.
2: Yes. Sebastian, uh, when he's going through his moment of existential dread, the Empress is ad- addressing him, but also speaks to Sebastian that the audience exists. Right. And in Jumanji, there's a scene where a little monkey boy (laughs) is trying to get an axe from the shed. This is the scene we
0: haven't uh, mentioned before, where Peter is cursed with, I was going to say primate appearance, but I mean, all humans have a primate appearance. We're
1: primates.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Monkey appearance.
0: Yes, he's made fuzzy and he has a tail that is apparently causing him a great deal of physical discomfort.
2: And he has... Uh, the face of the who's from Jim Carrey's The Grinch That Stole Christmas. That's, That's accurate. It's true.
1: It's a little unholy.
2: But so, he goes to the woodshed. Yes. Uh, to get the axe, but there's a lock on the shed, and yeah. so he grabs the axe, leaning on the shed, to break the lock to get the axe. Realizes he has the axe. <laughs> And then he looks at the camera, soul dead. Like, <laughs> like eh, Aww,
1: shucks. it's a living. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Ain't I
2: a stinker?
1: So they acknowledge <laughs> that we are characters in the film as well, participating.
2: We are observing, judging.
1: <laughs> Have
2: you ever done something so foolish that you identify extra dimensional beings <laughs> observing you? <laughs> Yes, I definitely have. have.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) No doubt about it. And then there's also the themes of like skipping school, and you, in Neverending Story, Sebastian had to call out the Empress's name. And at the end of the game in Jumanji, you have to call out Jumanji. Because, you know, Jumanji
0: loves nothing better than self-aggrandizing. Yeah. Or I guess not even self-aggrandizing, being aggrandized by the people that you are torturing. Because you are Jumanji, the game that tortures people. Yes.
1: All right. Well, that's cool. That was really cool, Jack.
0: Thank you. You also (laughs) helped. You knew. (laughs) Well, guys, we've said a lot about this movie. Uh, I think it's time to head into the Smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, do you want to give us your epic moment or feature and then tell us your rating from 1 to 10 dice?
1: Nice. My epic feature is going to be how the game calls out to people.
0: Nice. Yes. I
1: think that is so creepy and cool. The way it, it doesn't just call out to every kid. It only calls out to certain people. People, and you do have to those be Those who seek
0: to leave their world behind.
1: Yeah, those who have suffered a loss or a trauma or feel like they don't fit in and want to avoid the harsh reality. I mean, we all feel that way sometimes. And so it calls out to people who are in a vulnerable state. And that's very creepy and, and very cool. <laughs> and And they can hear it drumming. And also, it protests being put away. Uh, like Wouldn't you? When it's being buried or, or drowned, it, it's drumming, trying to call out desperately for the people to pick it back up again. And also, in one scene, when uh, Judy and Peter are trying to find the source of the drumming in their house, when they're getting closer to it, it starts drumming louder.
0: That is real creepy.
1: I know. It, it's it's great. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really great. Um, I, I really liked that feature. That added a real um, spine tingling factor to the movie for me. And when I was a kid, I didn't really pick up on that. I don't know why I found that so creepy now. But um, yeah, there you go. I'm going to give this movie um, 8 out of 10 dice.
2: Nice. It's really
1: solid. I feel like it holds up really well. It has great music. I think it has a lot to say about social constructs and class struggle and um, the grieving and healing process. I think it's really interesting. And I never really saw it before until we started watching it together for the show. So, yeah, I think it, it's a good movie.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. That's a great rating. Jack, how about your epic moment or feature, and then your rating from one to ten days?
2: Well, I got an epic moment. Nice. It's when Alan returns to the past, to when he is a child at the end of the film, to effectively right after he had the blowout with his dad about going out to boarding school. Right. And the dad comes back inside because he forgot something, and Alan runs up and gives his dad a big old hug. He's like, oh, dad, I missed you so much and all this sort of stuff. And the dad's like, what? I've only been gone like three minutes, Alan. What Whatever happened to never speaking to me again? And Alan is like, you know, I don't remember exactly what I said or what all went down, but, like, I didn't mean that sort of thing. And I'm just really happy to have you around, right? Yeah. And they they started having a much healthier form of communication in regards to, like, just their relationship in general and where they're planning on going.
1: It's true. His dad said, okay, well, when I get home from this, you know, party, we'll talk about your future man to man and you can decide what your fate is going to be. Yeah. And, and then you Alan...
0: can control your destiny. Yeah.
1: And then Alan says, how about father to son? And then then that really clinched it for them. Yeah! It really changed the course of their relationship, like you said.
2: It should have cut straight to the scene of the two muscular arms doing, like, the hand clamp. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that would have really bumped it up (laughs) to a 10 out of 10 movie. But, you know, that was my epic moment right there.
1: That's pretty epic.
2: Yes. And overall... The movie is still tons of fun. Nothing else has really been able to capture this style of film in the same way. You're right. And a lot of movies have tried because this is iconic. Mm-hmm. Because this is a classic, like you said. That's yeah. what it is. And just because of how fun it is, it touches on a lot of themes that everyone can relate to. It's a little old-fashioned with some of the language it uses yes. and just some of the visuals, uh the social positions of several characters and things of that nature. However, that does make it very much a sign of its times. Yeah. And uh I think I'm also going to give it an 8 out of 10. I think it did a lot of things really well. And uh aside from a few pacing changes and just, like, maybe... It's a little less progressive, but it came out like 30 years ago, so I don't know. I think 8 out of 10 is where I'm going to land with that, like you, Chelsea.
1: Yes, I'm glad we can be comrades in our numbering system, but you also made me realize it hasn't been 30 years. Boom, boom, boom. It's been 26 years. Oh! The same amount of time that Alan was in Jumanji.
0: Sweet Jesus.
1: What's going to (laughs) happen?
0: Am I in Jumanji right now?
2: No, Jamie. (laughs) What is your epic moment and or feature from the film? And what is your epic uh, rating? (laughs) One to ten dice. Also, I rated the film in dice, not swords. Retcon. (laughs) (laughs) When you
0: say retcon, it just fixes it in post.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Um... Thank you for asking me, Jack. I'm glad you asked that question of me because I have prepared an answer for this very occasion. My epic moment occurs around the time of the stampede scene when Alan is being a little testy with everybody. He comes out and first he seems like he's pretty chill. He's really thrilled to be back in the real world where things are a little less dangerous, at least. He, his perception as a 10 to 12 year old boy is that the world was pretty safe other than the bullies. Yeah. So he's much happier to be here rather than in the jungles of Jumanji. But, you know, he's starting to get a little fed up. Things are not going super well. And he's being a little snippy towards the kids. And there is a line where Sarah says, don't mind him, he's a Libra. And <laughs> yes. this joke was funny to me even having forgotten in the context that that is a reference to Robin Williams' breakout show, Mork from Orc. Where he uses the excuse, I'm a Libra for his wild and crazy behavior. Oh,
1: wow. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> I didn't even know that reference. So I did a little bit of research while looking up the exact line and I saw that. I was like, well, that line is funny to me regardless. Yeah. And then add that layer that it is a, like a meta reference. Again, a nod. To the camera, reminding us yeah. that Robin Williams is an actor playing a
1: part. Right. Right. Or
0: this character is Mork from Mork.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh shit.
0: Either way, I am going to give this movie eight out of ten dice. It's I I, uh-huh. I hate to just copy your guys' score, but it is a very fun movie. I was concerned that it was not going to hold up for any possible reason that a movie from 1995 might not hold up the humor might not land yeah the context might feel off I remember seeing the movie as a kid and I liked it the first time and the second time I think I was a little bored but I don't know why I don't know what's going on I was 12 when this movie came out a real Alan age if you know what I mean <laughs> yeah and you know I had the board game Very disappointed that I never got to be pulled into the world because I didn't think about how horrible it would be to have rhinoceri pounding through my living room or whatnot.
1: It's not quite as exciting that way, though.
0: You're right. The board game was less exciting. I think it had a, I don't remember much about the game. I think it had more going on than the actual game in the movie, which is just like a roll and move game. Yeah. I guess like it's got the challenges are just surviving the horrible things happening to you. But other than that, it's just a roll and move game, which I mean, we've moved beyond that in board gaming as an avid board gamer. I'm, like, turning my nose up at Jumanji. But then when you bring in the meta challenge, sure, yeah, if it was like, okay, how about dodge these rhinoceroses? Or, like, don't get murdered by these murder monkeys that show up. Yeah, that'd be more exciting. It's
1: a simple design, but the way they added a challenge is to make it really difficult to just play the game. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Sometimes it traps you in the floor. Right.
1: Through quicksand
0: hmm That, for some reason, swallows him up and then... Also just turns back into the wooden floor and freezes Robin Williams in the planks, which was a weird and creepy scene. And then they're like, get the axe to get him out? Or was it to yeah. fight? The, no, the axe was to fight the spiders, right? Right. But then, like, yeah, it was very weird that Peter's, like, running downstairs to go get the axe to fight the spiders. Like, the spiders are right there, dude. Like, you're not going to be back in time. By the time you get back, your family's going to be full of venom. Yeah. Or your sister and your new friends. Anyways, very fun movie. Great to see Robin Williams. Great to see all these characters just playing it to the hilt. Agreed. Eight out of ten dice. There's so much we couldn't even talk about because we had so much going on. And that, to me, is usually the sign of a good movie. When I have more to say, than we can fit into an amount of time that we think an audience would want to hear what we have to say about a movie. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: So that's it. Yeah. I, I think we have consensus again.
1: Nice. Are we becoming a
0: hive mind, guys?
1: Well, I did Mm. say I was a swarm of monkeys. Yeah, I know.
0: I think that the call is starting to call out to me, too.
1: Eventually, everyone will be pulled into our sway.
0: So before that happens, we should probably wrap this episode up. And to do that, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us for another movie episode of Swords & Satire. If you like the show please hop on the social media and follow us at swords and satire on Instagram or Twitter, or you can join the swords and satire Facebook group. And either way, you'll get updates on the movies we're watching every week, the shows we're watching in our bi-weekly TV episodes, and also check out some sweet memes that we post.
1: Oh yeah. And if you are able to support the show, you could head over to Patreon.com slash swords and satire and become one of our patrons today. If you join our community, you'll get access to all the bonus content we have up on there, like rewriting history episodes, outtake episodes, which are a lot of fun. And you could vote each month on one of the movies that we watch for our show.
0: Like this one, which was a patron voted selection.
1: That's right. Exactly. However, if you
2: do not have the means to support us financially at the moment, go ahead and write up uh, your favorite review of Swords and Satire, write it to the world, and then bury it uh, six feet underground, and maybe in a hundred years someone will dig it up and look at our podcast. Surely we'll have a lot more content then. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, we'll have at least like 30 more episodes by then.
2: (laughs) If you're not that sort of big-picture, long-term sort of planner, though, Tell your friends about it. They'll listen (laughs) also.
1: That works too.
2: You can probably talk with them a lot sooner than in a hundred years. I
0: think both of those
2: are equally
0: viable options. Do both. Yeah. But anyways, until next time. Hail Hail Crom!